BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. quarantining with my parents, which is great. Carmel and I are up in Seattle. Uh, my parents got a puppy, though. Two things. One, puppy is immune to potty training. Very cute, uh, but just pees everywhere. In front of us, looks us in the eye while it's happening. Good. Just goes for it. <clears throat> also, turns out my dog, just total asshole to young puppies. Uh, my mom bought this puppy, like, bone after bone after bone, and Louie just takes them from the puppy and hides them in a corner of the room, and then if the other dog tries to go into that corner, Louie attacks him like he's smog from The Hobbit. Aww. So it's always sobering when you realize that your child, uh, dog child in this instance, is just a real garbage person. <laughs> uh, so that's what's going on with me. But Lizzie, we're back this week for another episode of What Went Wrong. I am super excited. I am thrilled at the movie that you picked. It was even better than I remembered it, in my opinion. But yeah, I'll let you hop into it. Yes. So this week... I am again thrilled because I again got to watch a movie that I really love and same experience as Chris. It was even better than I remembered. Um, This week, we are talking about one of my all-time favorite movies, what I would absolutely argue is a horror movie, which is probably my favorite genre. (laughs) 100% a horror movie. And that movie is, of course, as you may have noticed by the banjos at the beginning of this episode, Deliverance. Very briefly before we get into this, I'm so excited for this episode. Um, There's a lot to talk about with this movie. Uh, But what was your reaction to having watched it again? I hadn't seen it in a couple years, and it blew me away again. I hadn't seen it in almost 20 years. Oh, wow. Wait, you were like 11 years old when you saw this? I was 12 or 13. Oh, no. (laughs) And I watched it with my dad. No! And... (laughs) He was like, this is a great movie, which is true. It's a very weird movie to watch with your dad in middle school. And I think we were both just like, we're not going to talk about this (laughs) for a little while afterwards. And, you know, uh, so uh, because I saw it at such a young age, I did not appreciate 
a lot of the incredible filmmaking, I think really subtly woven in themes, the great acting from every performer, Ned Beatty, Ronnie Cox, and then obviously John Voight and Burt Reynolds. Uh, I thought it was outstanding. I especially thought the first 45 minutes or so mm-hmm. were like nearly perfect filmmaking. Um, and then uh, the, the ending I found also incredibly uh, haunt, haunting as well. Uh, so yeah, it, Really, I was stunned. I also, though, as I was watching it, thought, what a nightmare to make this movie. Yeah. Half the movie is them on canoes literally going through rapids. Yes. And it didn't look like stunt doubles. It looked like it was them Hold the that whole thought, time. Chris, because you're and not I just wrong. Thought, oh, my God. <laughs> that seems so stressful and dangerous and time-consuming. And it all looked amazing. So they clearly did a great job. But... Man, I was not envious of any of them having to go through that process. I'm going to say it was a combination of them doing a great job and them being very lucky that no one died. So we will get to all of that later. A little bit of background on the movie that we're talking about. If you have not seen it, Deliverance was released July 30th, 1972. It was directed by John Borman, written by James Dickey based on his own novel of the same name. We're going to spend quite a bit of the episode on James Dickey. Um, it stars, as Chris said, John Boyd, Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. It is probably most famous, well, for two scenes, one of which that I'll mention at the top, which is the audio reference you heard at the top of this episode, is for the inclusion of a song called Dueling Banjos, which is also important mm-hmm. to remember as we will get to that a little later as well. It was nominated for three Oscars, Best Film Editing, Best Director, and Best Picture, um, it lost Best Director to Bob Fosse for Cabaret, which, like, pretty mm-hmm. good. I'm, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and it lost Best Picture to The Godfather. So quite a year. Um, yeah, tough year. Yeah, but it was in good company. In 2008, it was entered into the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress. This movie is amazing. So just to get this right out of the way for anybody that doesn't know, probably the most famous scene in the entire thing outside of the banjos is that there is a very upsetting uh, male rape scene. It is unlike anything I have ever watched. Uh, It was shocking then. It is shocking now. Shocking to watch with your dad. Yeah. (laughs) Not something I would do. I watched this with my mom, though. She loves Deliverance. (laughs) Well. Um, She has great taste in movies. Uh, So... It it is an incredibly shocking scene to watch. It also does bring a different level of gravity and importance to a movie that otherwise may have sort of just been like a camping adventure or camping horror movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And we will we will talk about that a little later as well. Um, Chris, since you just watched it, do you want to set up the plot of Deliverance a little for anyone that hasn't seen it? Sure. So uh, the story follows four friends played by Burt Reynolds, John Voight, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. Burt Reynolds plays Lewis, who's the most outdoorsy slash hunter mountain man. Allegedly, type. yes. yeah. Allegedly. Bow hunter, very muscular, very masculine. John Voight plays Bobby? No, He's Ed. Ed. So John Voight's character Ed. is actually... The narrator in the book. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. And he's and he's he's caught between the two worlds, right. right? He has he has a family and a child, and he he benefits from the system and he likes the system, but he's clearly 
there's an allure to Lewis and the outdoorsman and the thorough life that he feels drawn toward. Ned Beatty plays Bobby, who's the kind of like the jokester, jokester, fat guy. And then uh, the moral compass of the group is uh, Ronnie Cox's Drew. Mm -hmm. And the four of them head down the river in Appalachia. I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly we'll get into it. it there it's, um, it's set in the same place that the book is, which is in North Georgia, which is very yeah. rural, but yes. Yeah. A very rural area down a river that's going to be flooded with the construction of new dams. And they have a run in with locals that becomes quickly violent. And then it becomes a fight for survival and, a fight to cover up what happened yeah. for multiple reasons as they continue to head down river and attempt to make it to their vehicles waiting for them. That's actually what I forgot about this movie is that like most of the movie is is them kind of trying to decide what to do and how to handle it because they're like we right. can't really go to the police like everybody in this town is related to each other potentially and we're going to get totally screwed if we go in front of a jury here and then after that they realize that they're kind of maybe it's ambiguous but maybe being hunted by the guy who got away and it's also uh Ned Beatty's Bobby doesn't want it to get out that he was violated by another man yeah that's his motivation for sure Burt Reynolds is mm-hmm. is I don't want to go on trial in front of these people's families. So yeah, they make the potentially disastrous call to try and hide the bodies and continue down river, which then ends um, with another one of them dying. Yeah. The this entire second half of the film, everything that happens is ambiguous. Yeah. And that's what I think is so well done. It's kind of grotesquely ambiguous in a way that leaves these characters deeply uneasy as they end the film. Yeah. So as we mentioned, it was shot on location in Rabin, sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, Rabin County, uh, northeastern Georgia, which is where the book is set as well. So we're going to begin our journey, uh, our journey down river uh, where deliverance begins, and that is with James Dickey. So the film is based on the novel of the same name uh, by James Dickey, who also wrote the screenplay, which we'll get to a little later. So James Dickey actually has a cameo in the movie. You may remember at the very end, he shows up twice, but the sheriff um, who comes and talks to him at the car, that is James Dickey. So that is both the author and the screenwriter. He's good. He's incredible. Um, He, his role in the movie, essentially, he's a sheriff. It appears clear that he knows some foul play went on, but at the very end of the Mm -hmm. movie, he goes to the men and basically just tells them, leave and don't come back. He has Mm -hmm. one of my favorite lines in the movie. He says, I'd like to see this town die peaceful. Um, Mm -hmm. and just tells him to go. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia in 1923. That is where he grows up. After some time spent in the Army as a radar operator during World War II um, and in the Air Force in the Korean War, he ends up going to Vanderbilt. Um, He graduated magna cum laude with an English degree. He's super smart. Um, Interesting to note that there are a lot of accounts saying that he greatly exaggerated his... uh, time in World War II, having claimed to have been a fighter pilot when there are no hmm. records of that. Um, there are records of him being a flight navigator or radar operator. So that's kind of our first indication that James Dickey has a tendency to embellish and be a bit larger than life. Mm-hmm. 
He ends up becoming an English professor at Rice University in Texas and later at University of Florida. He also becomes a bit of a madman and does some copywriting for both Coca-Cola and Lay's, which would have been in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, He also starts publishing poems in the early 60s, and he won a ton of awards, including the National Book Award for Poetry. In 1970, he writes his first novel, which is Deliverance. Hmm. Um, Though it's never mentioned explicitly in the book or in the movie, actually, it is assumed that the four main characters are from Atlanta um, Mm -hmm. and that it does take place in rural northern Georgia. Interestingly, about the story, James Dickey was famous for going up to people and saying, don't you dare ever tell anybody this, you know, like, I'll get you if you tell anyone this, but everything in that story happened to me. And then someone else would have a conversation with someone. They'd be like, oh, yeah, they told me that, too. Like, oh, got it. Nothing, yeah. none, of, none of this is true. None of this happened yeah. to him. Um, yeah, he was a total lunatic like about stuff yeah. like that. He just liked messing with people. And he knew that the subject matter of the book was so disturbing that people would be like, wait, what? And he could just walk away. <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah, exactly. With a great exit. Um, the river mentioned in the book and the movie is the Kahulawasi River, which is fictional, but it pretty closely resembles the Chattooga River, I believe it is, which is in Rabin County, Georgia. And that is exactly where they filmed Deliverance. All this is to say hmm. that the movie does not stray that far from the source material. So far, mm-hmm. it's very close. So in 1970, just before the novel's release, a former student of James Dickey's named David Geiler, who was working for Warner Brothers, got an advance copy of the manuscript. And when he finished it, he basically sprinted to the executives at Warner Brothers and was like, you need to acquire the film rights to this immediately mm-hmm. before it releases, which they did. Yeah, I was wondering how the movie would come out in 72 yes. if the book was releasing in 70. So they got the rights before it ever came out. They paid $100,000 for the movie rights, which was a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. and they also agreed to let Dickie write the screenplay, which is something that they would probably come to regret. (laughs) However, Warner Brothers quickly realized they had made a gamble that was already paying off. When the book released, it was an immediate massive commercial success. Hmm. And James Dickey was quickly becoming a household name. So they begin production on the film less than one year after the novel is released. They're like, we need to capitalize on the interest of this. We're going to go into production right away. Something else about James Dickey, in addition to being a larger-than-life individual, he was also a bit of a crazy drunk. This is a direct quote from him. He said, quote, I am crazy about being drunk. I like it like Patton liked war. <laughs> End quote. So crazy drunk is just uh, what he calls himself. That's good yeah, to know. Yeah, he, no, he, uh, he loved it, and he, yeah. he leaned into it. Also, uh, he's a funny man. A bit of a dick when it came to other writers and poets. He uh, <laughs> referred to Robert Frost as a, quote, super jerk, okay. um, compared Sylvia Plath to Judy Garland, and he would also hold random press conferences where he'd just start ripping Dylan Thomas, a new asshole, for, like, no apparent reason. So he he just he doesn't do anything halfway, let's say that. Love it. Now, James Dickey had a very specific director in mind for this project, and it wasn't John Borman. He wanted a man named Sam Peckinpah, who had just received a ton of acclaim. He, who makes perfect sense for this movie. Right. He's a much more natural fit in terms of like what he had made previously and what mm-hmm. he was interested in. Peckinpah had just received a ton of acclaim for his 1969 Western, The Wild Bunch. As a person, he was a much better fit um, 
for the movie. He's more mm-hmm. of an outdoorsman. He's like a Western tough mm-hmm. guy. And Dickie wanted him really badly. However, evidently Peckinpah had gone extremely over budget on his 1970 film, The Ballad of Cable Hogue, and Warner Brothers said, no way. They mm-hmm. did not trust him to keep deliverance at the budget that they had intended it for, which was not big, like even despite the amount of press around this. So eventually Warner Brothers and Dickey agree on John Borman, who had just won the Best Director Award at Cannes for a movie called Leo the Last. Now, Borman was a really interesting choice for this movie because, first of all, He's British. Right. <laughs> Which is when you think about it, like very unusual. It's such an American yeah, movie. It is such an American movie. Um, mm-hmm. I would never have guessed that the director was British. He had some experience adapting novels to screen, however. He'd made Point Blank in 1967, which was based on a Richard Stark novel. And that's where he first worked with Lee Marvin, who he would work with again on Hell in the Pacific and who will show up mm-hmm. in this story in just a minute. Now, he was by no means a huge name when he signed on for Deliverance, but he was plenty experienced and he knew what it took to bring a book to the screen, Mm -hmm. much to James Dickey's dismay. The first version of the screenplay that James Dickey delivered was reportedly something like 700 pages long. Of course. Of course. (laughs) An author. Cut cut some of your own book out. No, no. No, Let me add some. Yeah, exactly. Um, Here are all the scenes that the editor wouldn't let me put in the book. Yeah, that's pretty much what he did. So he basically just chopped up the novel and called it a day. Dickie himself said that it was very good, but he he estimated it would run about seven hours. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) Which I love that he's like, no, y'all are going to love it. It's going to be seven hours long. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is, when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute, restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. (laughs) So the first third of the book is all focused on the four men living their relatively comfortable lives in Atlanta. And Dickie had kept all of that in the screenplay. Right. Oh, man. Yeah. So John Borman describes this as their first big disagreement. He said, you can't do that in a film and you don't Mm -hmm. need it. Um, Talking about the characters, he argued that, quote, through action and behavior, they define themselves, which Mm -hmm. is such a great quote. Um, Borman obviously won this argument because the movie begins. They're already in the cars um, on the way to the trip. Yeah. And he was In fact, you hear all right. their dialogue without seeing their faces for the first yeah. few minutes. Dickie's own son comes right out and says, quote, Borman had a much better sense of how to put a film together, which is true. I mean, it was his mm-hmm. job. That's what he yeah. was hired to do. Um, and this would really be the crux of the issue between the two men. Borman knew what he was doing. And it really kind of irritated Dickie. As mm-hmm. John Voigt put it, quote, you tried to figure out who the hell you were dealing with, referring to Dickie. 
He had great confidence in his persona, more than I have. I'm a person who questions everything, myself most of all. Dickie didn't have that gene. Um, I also want to say here, I forgot to say it at the top, I pulled a lot of this information from some really excellent oral histories of deliverance. Um, One was in Garden and Gun magazine. Another was in Atlanta magazine. And there was a third for The Guardian, all of which were really great. It's really cool to hear from everybody involved. Well worth reading. So now it's time to start casting the movie. John Borman uh, goes to Warner Brothers and they tell him that he needs to get two massive stars attached to this project. Like that is his job. Of course. Two big ones. So he's Mm -hmm. like, all right, I'm going to do it. He goes out and he actually manages to get Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando (laughs) to sign on. So it would have been Jack Nicholson for Ed, which is John Boyd's character, and then Marlon Brando for Lewis, the Burt Reynolds character. Which I would have loved to watch that version of the movie too. That sounds really fun. I, I don't know if I, would I don't have think loved it'd be as good. Jack Nicholson, but Brando sounds interesting. Um, well, as we know, yeah, interesting <laughs> is probably the word for dealing with Brando in a canoe. I don't know if you want to sign up for that. Brando, who like didn't have an agent, I don't think, only agreed to do it on the condition that he be paid whatever Jack Nicholson was paid, and then. Jack Nicholson heard that and he was like, all right, I want $500,000. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So Borman's like, all right, whatever. Like they said, get two big stars. I yeah, got two big stars. Yeah, it's not Borman's job. No. So he walks back into Warner Brothers and he's like, great news. I got Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando will do it for whatever we pay Jack Nicholson. They're like, great. How much are, mm-hmm. are we paying Jack Nicholson? He's like, 500000 And they like scream laughed him out of the room and they were like, we're not paying They said, we might consider paying that for Jack Nicholson. There's no way in hell we're paying that for Marlon Brando. Oh, interesting. I would have guessed it would be the opposite. No, Jack Nicholson was a much bigger star at this Hmm. point. Um, He was like one of the hottest stars in Hollywood. And Marlon Brando was considered box office poison. They were like, absolutely not. Hmm. So Borman's like, I did what you told me to do. I don't understand. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, you know what? Screw it. Make the movie for $2 million total and make it with unknowns in the lead. So they just do a complete 180 and they're like, I don't know if this is because they were losing confidence in Dickie's ability to write the script. Well, yeah, they got a 700 page script, like a British director. They're probably just like, well, let's just make it and see what happens. Yeah, I think at this point they're like, this is going to be a nightmare and probably isn't going to be that good. So just make it with people nobody's ever heard of. Well, I think also once you have two stars approach a project, and then they have word gets around town that they said no to those stars because they couldn't pay them enough. It probably takes the luster off the project for other people at yeah. the comparable level. Yeah. So the first two actors they end up casting are, in fact, unknowns. And those are Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox, who are who two are of my both favorite people. Great. They're in so the whole good movie. in the movie. They're I love so them. Um, I love both of them mm-hmm. since then. They're amazing. So. Ronnie was a stage actor who was struggling in New York, and Ned Beatty was a regional theater actor working in D.C. at the time. Um, Really? Yeah. Neither of them had ever acted on camera before in their lives. That's incredible. This is not just that they were unknowns. They had never done it. Wow. It's their first IMDb credit. Could Ronnie really play the guitar? Because yeah, it looked could. great. Okay, good. It's, yeah, I was like... It's him playing. You're not hearing him, which we'll get to, but it course, is him yeah. playing. I would also imagine that... Ned Beatty's part in particular was especially difficult to cast because he is the one who has to be involved in the rape scene. Yeah. A lot of actors that they met with no, said, they're like, I will never be not. able to be a leading man after I yeah. do that scene. It's like 1970s Hollywood. And it's for the same reason that the character doesn't want it to get out. I'm sure that an actor playing that role 
uh, doesn't like, want to do it. Not only I'm going to be emasculated, but he doesn't get any sort of heroic, triumphant no. comeuppance as a character either. No, but, and I expected to sort of see that like, oh, we had to convince Ned to do it. Mm-hmm. Not the case at all, um, which I think is really interesting. And here's Ronnie Cox talking about how Ned Beatty understood the scene and continues to discuss the scene. I think it sheds some light on why he had absolutely no problem signing up for it. This is, uh, in many ways, a quintessential man's movie. What do you think Deliverance has to say about manhood? Well, uh, Ned said this earlier, is that the, the, that this is a film that, that, in many ways, women got way before men did, because women had, for centuries, had to deal with the, the concept of rape. But this was the first time that, that men had had to come to grips with that rape, not necessarily being an act of a sexual act, but a, of control and of yeah. violence. And, and, and Dom, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, uh, as Ned has said, that women got this film on a, on a level way earlier than men did. I think men are just now starting to catch up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, props to Ned Beatty for being like, yeah, I'll do this. Um, And I think it's interesting that he and Ronnie Cox were coming from a theater background and potentially more willing to explore it um, because Mm -hmm. of that. Um, Also, the casting director, Lynn Stallmaster, didn't realize that uh, Ronnie Cox and Ned Beatty knew each other. They had done something like 20 plays together in the theater circuit and were actually good friends. So a lot of the friendship you see on screen is real. Now, some interesting other folks who were in the mix that might have made the film look very different. Um, Dickie wanted Gene Hackman to play Ed. Um, The director wanted Lee Marvin. He actually almost got Lee Marvin, but Lee Marvin read the script and said, I'm too old. Like, you don't don't want me in this. Yeah, he would have been 20 years too old to play that role. Yeah, so he said no. Um, Other names that came up for Lewis in particular, Steve McQueen, Donald Sutherland, and Charlton Heston. Um, I believe all of whom turned it down. Charlton Heston, I think, was he had a, a conflict at the time. And Donald Sutherland is the only one who has expressed regret for not taking it. He would have um, been an odd choice for Lewis. I would have seen him more as an Ed. That's interesting. He's kind of menacing. I, I could see him as Lewis. Other names considered were Robert Redford, Henry Fonda, George C. Scott, <laughs> and Warren Beatty. So Burt Reynolds loved the script as soon as he read it. He signed on pretty quickly, um, even though he had some concerns that the rape scene might end his career. Mm-hmm. Uh, he kind of didn't care. He, he'd he done three failed TV series at this point. He was really looking for a break into mm-hmm. serious acting and movies in particular, and he basically just said, fuck it. He was like, mm-hmm. I like this. I'm going to do it. John Voight was the last one to join the cast, and that's probably because he was the most established at that time. He's not a huge star. However, he had done Midnight Cowboy Mm -hmm. and Catch-22, and he was a little hesitant. Allegedly, John Borman had to call him on the phone, and he was like, listen, I'm going to count to 10. You have until I count to 10 to say (laughs) yes to this movie. And like on nine, John Boyd was like, I'll do it. So you might be wondering how they cast the supporting characters in this film, because they look very real, let's say. They do indeed. And that is because, with the exception of the uh, main mountain man, who is the one that rapes Ned Beatty's character, Mm -hmm. um, he was from Pasadena by way of Tennessee. But Mm -hmm. the rest of them are all locals. 
Oh, wow. So the banjo kid Mm -hmm. was played by a local child named Billy Redden, and he was cast exclusively for his, let's say, distinctive features. The casting director was taken to a local grammar school to cast the part. He looked in a window. He saw Billy from across the room. He called John Borman, and he was like, I I don't know if this kid can play the banjo, but this is your kid. Mm -hmm. Um, So it turns out he cannot play the banjo at all. (laughs) Like, could not play a single note. Literally can't even, didn't know how to hold it. Can't play it. It's not him playing it, which is amazing because when you watch it. Yeah, it looks very convincing. That's because they actually had to sew an extra sleeve into the shirt that he's wearing. And another child who could play the banjo is reaching through and playing for him. That's an incredible trick. They really pulled it off. They did. Very sold. Well, and something else that's interesting is that. I think it adds to the creepiness of the scene because his face doesn't really match what his yes, hands are that's doing. that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because there, this way that the scene is written in the book, it says that the kids, uh, quote, fingers moved only slightly about those, uh, about like those of a good typist. The music was just there. So mm-hmm. it actually ends up matching the book really well mm-hmm. because he didn't know how to play. A little fun fact here. You know, the weird like quick head turn away that he does? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, when he tries to shake his hand. Yes. So that apparently they couldn't get the kid to do that to Ronnie Cox because he loved Ronnie Cox and they like got along really well. But he fucking Mm -hmm. hated Ned Beatty for no apparent reason. So that's why Ned Beatty is (laughs) in the shot. Walks (laughs) up also. Yes. They had Ned Beatty just like walk up and stand there and say something to him so that he would turn his head away. That's awesome. So as we discussed, um, the like main mountain man guy was played by Bill McKinney. Um, He was an actor living in California, but he was originally from Tennessee. Mm Mm-hmm. Here, however, is Burt Reynolds talking about the casting process for the absolutely terrifying other hillbilly, the uh, toothless one. And I said, I know a guy, he can't read and he can't write or anything, but he, I'm telling you, if we can get him, we got something special. So I said, let me bring him in. His name's Cowboy and he'll just talk to you and you, and you see if you like him. So he came in and introduced him and everything and he, and he said, uh, did you tell him I can't read? I said, yes, I, I told him that. And the director went, just read this first line here, cowboy. And he went, and he looked over at me like, oh, I'm going to get this beat out of me. You know? <laughs> and, he, and he said, well, the first, li- I, I, the first line, cowboy, is get over against that tree and take your pants down. <laughs> and he said, get over against that sapling and take your panties down. And the director said, you got the panties. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Um, And in case you're wondering how or why Burt Reynolds (laughs) knew this man, um, Mm -hmm. they they were friends. Uh, and that is due to the fact that Burt Reynolds had several years earlier spent a summer working at a local amusement park called Ghost Town in the Sky in Maggie Valley, North Carolina in the 60s. Uh, that is where he met Herbert Cowboy Coward. Um, Coward and Burt Reynolds were both uh, like fake gunslingers at mm-hmm. this amusement park. And by the way, um, Cowboy had lost his front teeth at Ghost Town when he was smacked in the face by what we can only assume was a real pistol. (laughs) Yeah. Poor guy. Um, 
So the casting of locals, unknowns, and quote-unquote non-actors ended up resulting in some of the movie's most famous lines, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of them were complete accidents. Uh, Squeal Like a Pig came from Ned Beatty and Cowboy, both of whom had... Yeah, they had experience um, tying up hogs. Mm. In fact, in the original script, Ned's character didn't fight or try to run away at all, but John Borman felt that wasn't realistic. Mm -hmm. Um, So Ned, who had some experience hog tying, um, came up with the idea of Bill McKinney grabbing him, quote, like a hog, and the rest is history. Let's hear Mm. uh, Ned Beatty talk about it. it. Scripted, it was just the fact that I gave in to what the situation was. And I made myself available to whatever he wanted to do to me. But John Borman didn't believe that. He thought, well, you, aren't you going to try to do something? So what he really wanted for is, is for me to run. And when I ran, I remembered how we, when I was in the situation, we were dealing with big boar hogs and how this older man would have to grab one of the back legs and I would have to hit it with the tackle and then roll up on top of it and then put the rope around the legs. And all this stuff was going on. And Mm. that's when we came to the squealing of the pig thing. Wow. So already you're seeing that there are some departures from not just the novel, but also James Dickey's screenplay. Mm -hmm. Uh, Granted, they are departures that have become probably the most iconic moments from the movie. Right. Which you can imagine also probably didn't sit particularly well. Yeah, I'm sure James loves it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. by the way, you sure got a pretty mouth. That is also cowboy. Oh, really? Not in the screenplay. Interesting. Yeah, that's yeah. all you need to hear to know what's coming in that scene. You sure do. It is terrifying, um, especially when he has zero teeth. So one would have to imagine that all these changes in this level of improvisation on set probably didn't sit too well with the film and novels over the top author. So let's talk about James Dickey on set because he was on set the whole freaking time. Very um, unusual to have the screenwriter on set. You know, you don't need him there. <laughs> no. You don't. Uh, you don't. So while they were rehearsing, the cast and crew was staying at the Kingwood Country Club in Clayton, Georgia. At night, they would go and grab drinks at the bar. But remember, who loves to drink more than Patton loves war? Yes, that's correct. It is James Dickey. Mm-hmm. So Dickey starts getting just absolutely shit can wasted every night. And he would insist on calling all of the actors by their character names whenever they would come into the bar. So one night, uh, Burt Reynolds is sitting at the bar and he starts to hear this, Lewis, Lewis, coming from across the other side of the bar. So Burt Reynolds is like, I'm not going to respond. Uh-huh. And he doesn't look at him. He won't say anything. And the bartender is like, hey, I'm pretty sure he's talking to you. Uh-huh. And Burt Reynolds is like, my name's not Lewis. Yep. Um and so, of course, Dickey, like, lumbers over. By the way, James Dickey was, like, 6'3 and a half he's big. and enormous. Yeah, you said he was a sheriff. He's, he's a big a guy. He's a thick dude. Yeah, he is, he is thick. Yeah. He comes over to Reynolds, and he's like, hey, I, you know, I was talking to you, <laughs> Lewis. And Burt Reynolds goes, uh, no, Lewis works between 7 and 5 tomorrow. My name's Burt. Mm-hmm. I think Burt Reynolds is the only one that was like, listen, you might be bigger than I am, but I'm insane, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll slap you in the face. Yes. <laughs> like... which as we know burt reynolds could do Uh and then dickie apparently paused and goes that's exactly what lewis would say before (laughs) what a good response i gotta respect dickie in that situation here's the thing about james dickie that like made me sad when i was reading all of this he was an unbelievable writer oh he's i mean he must have been the story's amazing yes 
The story's amazing. The, um, you know, the vast majority of the dialogue in Deliverance is his. Oh, yeah. The um, script is obviously very well written. It makes me want to read the first book. First book, but he first was, screenplay. That's crazy. Yeah. Just a total psychopath in real life, but, I mean, extremely talented. Mm-hmm. In particular, Dickie's offset antics really bothered Ronnie Cox. Um, so he pulled the same stuff with him, always calling him Drew and trying to get Cox to perform scenes for other drunk guys in the country club bar, telling them basically like that, you know, like, uh, come, come see what they're doing with my movie. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, let me show you what my actors can do mm-hmm. and what he's treating them sort of like puppets. Yeah. And he just wants them to perform. Yeah. And they did not like it. No. So John Borman gets wind of this and decides that he has to ask Dickie to leave and come back for his cameo as as the sheriff at the end. Mm-hmm. John Borman and all four lead actors confront Dickie because I think they were all terrified sure. of him. Like he, this guy is a complete loose cannon. Mm-hmm. And Ronnie Cox talking about it, he said it was like watching James Dickey play all four of the characters from the movie at once, kind of like vacillating right. between right, the right. different. So when it came time to say his piece, Beatty, who seemed to have the least issue with Dickie of all the four of them, said, "Quote." I really love your book and what you've done with the script, but what we do is such a totally different exercise that there's just no way we can compromise. Rather than acting out something like you think, we do it together. We play off one another. You're going to have to let us be free to do that. Very reasonable, thoughtful, measured response. I can't wait to see how Dickie's going to (laughs) reply. Well, so there are varying accounts of what happened next. Uh However, it would appear... That at some point after James Dickey had gotten significantly more hammered uh-huh. that night, yeah. um, he punched John Borman straight in the face Great. and broke his nose and two of his oh teeth. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Wow. Oh. So this, this is a little hard to verify, but I saw it in enough places that I I, I think he did that. Was John Borman However, older than him? No, he was younger than him. No, he was he was slightly younger. But the thing is, John Borman is not like... He's not a super young guy. Um, he was 40. He's not as old as... Right. He's 40, He was about yeah. 40 when this movie was made. So he was older than yeah. the actors, but younger than James Dickey. Yes. <laughs> so even though James Dickey swore that if he left, he would never return for his cameo no, of course as the not. sheriff. Of course not. You know, you get yourself another boy yeah, yeah, is yeah. what he said. Man, he crawled right back because oh, yeah. he could not resist mm-hmm. having a cameo. And of course, he also writes himself a massive monologue to deliver as the sheriff. Mm-hmm. Now, at this point, John Mor- John Borman has got his number. So he's like, great, beautiful. I love the monologue. It's absolutely perfect. Um, when you deliver it, I want you to deliver half of the monologue at the front of the car. Right. Like kind of on the hood of the and car. And then those last then two I lines I really like, lean in and <laughs> yes, say them in the yes. close-up. <laughs> He's like, I want you to stop, and then I want you to walk around. I want you to finish the monologue. Yeah. So guess which chunk makes it into the movie? Yeah. He just cut the whole first <laughs> Exactly. Because <half laughs> he realized there was no nothing he could do other than just get rid of him on the cutting room floor. Yeah, that's the way to do it. But he does deliver one of my favorite lines in the whole movie, which is when he says, I'd kind of like to see this place die peacefully. And he's and very so good. good. He's a good actor. Oh, he's great. I was stunned to learn that that was, that, that was him and that it was probably, he was also probably drunk and then he was a non-actor, you know, and they, and they did it. He was very, very good. Well, one of those things is correct yeah. in that he was probably drunk. Mm-hmm. So, as you mentioned earlier, this is a pretty stunt-heavy movie. Early on in the movie... When Burt Reynolds and John Voight are in the car headed towards the river, Burt Reynolds says, I've never been insured in my life. I don't believe in insurance. Yes, indeed. 
Now, it would appear that this was also the belief of the production, um, because in order to cut costs, not only did they not insure the actors, but they also had them do all of their own stunts. <laughs> Uh, John Borman's like, if one of them dies, we're just gonna we're gonna sink them, just like these other guys in the movie. Literally, yeah. he's like, we're gonna put rocks on them and sink them in the river. It'll it'll be fine. Wow. As you may be able to tell by watching the movie, that is all four of them doing all of the canoeing on and what it, was. It looks you're yeah you're gripping your seat while you're watching it. It just goes to show you that knowing that something's real and happening with the real actors, as opposed to even a convincing stunt double or a CGI replacement, it just ups the stakes because you're watching these guys through not the crazy rapids, whereas, you know, we've seen more modern movies of people jumping off of waterfalls, but we know that it's not real, so you lose that tension. To be honest, though, these actually are crazy rapids. No, they are. The first couple are small, and then by the end, you're just like, no way they're doing these things. Well, also, it should be noted that the river they shot on, the Chattooga River, was not a river that people took canoes out on. Right, This was not, like, this is not a tourist-friendly river. This is not a place that people frequently do this. Um, In fact, it was most notorious for people going rafting on it and just getting completely destroyed. And, like, having their rafts just shatter on the rocks. Um, So only one out of the four leads had any experience whatsoever in a canoe. Can you guess who that was? I'm guessing Ned Beatty. You were right. It was Ned Beatty. <laughs> he looked very, he looked actually comfortable at the front of that canoe. Like he was He's acting the only uncomfortable, one. but he looked, whereas the other guys were kind of panic. You know what I mean? Yeah, like they don't know what they're doing at all. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. He knew what he was doing. He, uh, Ned Beatty actually did play a trick on Burt Reynolds at one point. Apparently because Ned Beatty knew what he was doing, Burt Reynolds had gotten a little lazy in the back of the canoe at one mm-hmm. part of it. And uh, Ned Beatty was asking him to paddle in a certain direction. He looked behind him to see that Burt Reynolds was asleep. Mm-hmm. So he sees like some minor rapids coming up and Ned Beatty is like, I'm going to mess with this guy. And he jumped out of the canoe and hid so that when it would go over the rapids, it like kind of, you know, Burt Reynolds like fell out of the canoe and he came out and he's like, you know, Ned, Ned, oh my God. And Ned yeah. Beatty is just like hiding underwater laughing. And then he pops up and he's like, well, I'm doing fine. Like, what are you doing? And Burt Reynolds was so mad. Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's like a little kid that hides from their parent in the grocery store and the parent's like, oh my God, my child's been abducted. And the little kid's like, this that's so funny. <laughs> I've been behind the cans the whole time. <laughs> yeah, mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there are some scenes where the canoes were supposedly on tracks under the water. I don't know if I buy that. I know in one indication they said that they actually had dammed the river a little higher up so they would drain it so that they could put some tracks in um, in some of the crazier rapids. They didn't for some of the like sort of mid-range rapids, but they did allegedly put them on tracks for some of the bigger I'm ones. I'm guessing like when they had to have, you know, one hit the other to split it exactly. Yes. You know, moments that like stuff, that probably yeah. was on tracks, but that was on tracks. pretty uncontrolled. It was. But so even when it was on tracks, when they dammed the river, it reached a point where apparently John Borman was getting really impatient um, and just felt like they should just go. So they actually released the river too early and it like completely capsized all of the boats. And he was like, we're lucky that we're still alive. But you're talking about some of the sequences where it's clear that it looks very like amateur. Like there's some moments where there's a moment where I think Ned Beatty and John Voight are in the canoe together mm-hmm. and they turn it around backwards yeah, and go yeah, down. Yeah. That that's real. Um, that was a moment where that's just how they went down the rapids, and that's why Ned Beatty's like it's a little unorthodox, is yeah, because exactly. like <laughs> it was not planned. 
Um, so also one of the more famous shots in it is Burt Reynolds when he's kind of going down the waterfall, like you can see him sliding. Yeah. So that's they, like that's real. Him. Yeah, yes. it's yeah. They launch him out of a canoe and then he slides down the rapids. So the first time that they did it, they were doing it with a dummy because it is a obviously that mm-hmm. is a dangerous shot. Um, someone on set after watching back the dailies was like, that looks like a dummy. So Burt Reynolds was like, I want to do it. Like, just let me do it. I don't want this to look like a dummy. It's going to ruin the movie if, if that's the situation. So they're like, whatever. And James Dickey's in the back like, that's what Lois would say. <laughs> James Dickey's the ones like shoving him down the yeah, rapids. Exactly. So he does it. He ends up breaking his coccyx when he hit a rock about oh. a quarter a quarter of the oh. way down. So he's Just so literally. You don't know, that's your tailbone. It's your tailbone. He shatters his tailbone. He's not even oh. all the way down. Um, he has to keep going <laughs> on the rocks. Uh, and then at the end of the waterfall, he got sucked into something called a hydroflow. Now, they had told him beforehand if that happened that he should not try to swim against it, but he should actually swim down. Uh, so he does this because they said if you do that, it'll just shoot you back mm-hmm. up. What they didn't mention was that it shoots you up with a force that Burt Reynolds was not prepared for. Yeah. And it ripped all of his clothes off. So he, he <laughs> shoots up out of the hydroflow completely naked. And with all a broken of the women tailbone. on set and some of the men are just like, oh my God, the river just gave us naked Burt Reynolds. <laughs> no, they, they couldn't Burst figure out where he from the water like a newborn child. Like dude. Venus of uh, Venus de Milo. Yeah. They couldn't figure out like where he'd gone. And then they see this like completely buck ass naked man who's just like hobbling down the side of the river and, and then he comes up and still naked Burt Reynolds is like how does it look and John Borman goes like a dummy going over the waterfall no. <laughs> oh poor Burt oh, that sounds God. so painful horrible oh, uh, another famous insane scene that I cannot believe they did themselves uh, do you remember the moment where John Voight scales the cliff to go up yes so that's John Voight well, yeah, what's, so it looks kind of fakey, but I realized that's it's just real. because they were doing day for night. They were shooting day, and then they were just coloring the sky to look dark. And They it actually did that wonky. for a lot of the movie because they wanted, in particular, the river water to look kind of black. Um, like, they put a filter over it. So in this scene, John Voight essentially, like, free solos his way up an enormous cliff face. And it's not him the entire time. There are a couple shots where you see someone. When he's repelling, he's clearly it's a stronger person for, like, one of the wide shots. Yeah, for some of the wides where you see, like, when it's really far back and you see a little guy just right in the middle of this enormous cliff, that's not him. But there are shots where you see John Voight and he's 40, 50 feet up on this thing, uh, free climbing, and that is him. And they didn't have any harness on him. They had no ropes on him. Um, It's insane. Like, he's he was not a professional climber. And again, this is a situation where whether he volunteered, he enthusiastically agreed to do it because he knew that they needed shots where they could see his face. And so he was like, I'm going to do it, uh, which is absolutely bananagrams. Also, when they're lowering the body of the second guy. Yes, um, that's the sequence to me that stood out even more because that looks that's, that's, that's just poor, an actor. That's poor cowboy. That's what I was going to say. It didn't look like they built a dummy of him. That just no. looked like him. That's him. Yeah. He talked about it. He was like, yeah, it hurt. Took about half an hour to <laughs> like lower really me painful. off the cliff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. By the way, cowboy is still a bit of a local celebrity and has a pet squirrel named Angel. Oh, I like that. I like that. 
Yeah, he's having a good time. Ned Beatty also nearly drowned when he fell overboard and was sucked underwater by a whirlpool. Uh, A PA actually had to leap in and pull Ned Beatty out. And he uh, he said his first thought was, how will John Borman finish the film without me? And then the second thought was, the bastard will find a way. (laughs) (laughs) And Burt Reynolds was just telling the PA, he's just faking it. Don't go down there. (laughs) Yeah, Burt Reynolds is like, don't listen. They also evidently brought in a deer. This is sad. They brought in a deer from an animal sanctuary for that shot where John Boyd is trying to kill a deer at the beginning. Okay, well, you may wonder why it appeared so tranquil and slow. That is because they thought that tranquilizing it would be the best way to get the shot, but they overdosed it and it died. Oh, no. Oh, it's terrible. I feel bad. I know. Um, So even though Burt Reynolds loved the movie, when asked if he would do it again, he said, quote, not for $3 million. So earlier on, we mentioned the iconic banjo sequence in Deliverance. While the song is referred to as Doolin' Banjos on the soundtrack for Deliverance, uh, it was actually a song that was first written and recorded in 1955 by Arthur Guitar Boogie Smith, um, initially called Feudin' Banjos. Which and I it, saw in the credits, and I was wondering if you were going to talk about this. Oh, we're going to talk about it, because it made its first major debut in a 1963 episode of The Andy Griffith Show. Now, despite the fact that Deliverance made the song iconic and it shot to number two on the Billboard Hot 100 charts in 1973, uh, they neglected to ask for Mr. Guitar Boogie's permission to use it. Wow. By the way, uh, (laughs) it sat behind Roberta Flack's Killing Me Softly on the Billboard charts. (laughs) Just wasn't that good, but it was. Yes, it it is. What a uh, weird summer for music. So 1972, man. Oh, what a time. So this was not the first time that the song had been used without Guitar Boogie's permission, but it was the first time it had been used in a movie that was so commercially successful yeah. or that an adaptation had gone to number two on the Billboard charts. Yeah, of like, course. It made a lot of money. Yeah. So uh, Mr. Boogie Smith filed a lawsuit against Warner Brothers because they had never asked if they could use it and also didn't pay him. I would like to state I am fully team Guitar Boogie on this yeah, one. Yeah, Guitar Boogie, get your money. Oh, he did. Evidently, when he filed the suit, a lawyer from Los Angeles called him and offered him $15,000, to which Mr. Guitar Boogie said, quote, I really appreciate the offer. You might be a good attorney in Los Angeles, but you wouldn't do too good in Carolina. And that was a no. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that was a big old <laughs> F you. Yes. So needless to say, Guitar Boogie won his lawsuit big time. And when asked how much money he made on the settlement, he apparently would point to a picture of a 42-foot yacht on his wall and said, Warner Brothers bought me the boat. (laughs) He says, I bought this picture. (laughs) (laughs) Um, He did not want to be credited in the actual film, though. You may notice his name does not appear. Yeah, I didn't see his name. Yeah, that's because he thought it was horrible. (laughs) It was a terrible movie. (laughs) He was like, no, no, uh, I just want the money. I'm glad he got what he wanted. Well, so part of the reason that he thought the movie was horrible is something that a lot of people local to the area, a feeling that a lot of people local to the area shared, um, is that it was a, a detrimental portrayal of Appalachia. Now, when John Borman screened the film for Warner Brothers, the executives were just completely silent. They watched it. They didn't say anything afterwards. And then just before they walked out, they told him a movie with no women in it has never been successful at the box office. And then they just left. They were like, <laughs> I don't know what I just watched. <laughs> and I'm, I'm going to leave. <laughs> but I love when they say things where it's like, did you read the script? 
Yeah, like what were you expecting? Did they think Ned Beatty's part was a lady? Like what are they, <laughs> like what's going on here? I don't know. Um, apparently the dead silence after finishing the movie was a very common trait amongst all audiences. However, Warner Brothers would eat their words. It became the fifth highest grossing film of 1972, bringing in over $46 million just domestically, again on a budget of around $2 million. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was extremely commercially successful. Um, and I will share with you what... Uh, so my mom saw this in theaters with her sisters and my grandmother. Now, they did not know... My grandma did not know what this movie was about. I think she thought it was a camping movie. Um, and so at the end of the movie, there was the, this quintessential sort of dead silence over the audience where no one knows what to say. And my grandma, who is from Texas, stood up, pointed at the screen and said, I could have lived my entire life without seeing that. <laughs> and then just walked out. <laughs> That's fair. Which is one of my favorite reactions uh, to uh, a movie. I don't agree, but I understand. <laughs> yeah. She was pissed. Now, while pretty much everyone else involved in the film would go on to continued great success, the one person who would never quite recover from Deliverance was the person who created it, and that is James Dickey. Yeah, I was wondering. I haven't really heard his name yeah. elsewhere. Apparently, he would walk up and down the lines of people waiting to see the movie, just reeking of booze and saying, you see that? That's my movie. He would alternate between praising the movie, saying it was better than the book, and then also saying that it was terrible and that John Borman had ruined what he considered his film. He allegedly even went so far as to try and get his original screenplay made in the late 80s, but obviously there were no takers on that. He descended into deeper and deeper depths of alcoholism, expressing regret over what he'd done to the river once telling a friend, quote, say goodbye to the river for me. And this sentiment, I think, harkens back to what I mentioned just a few minutes ago, which is that a lot of people local to North Georgia felt that the film had perpetuated stereotypes and painted this idea of a mountain man or hill person as an inbred monster. And they were appalled because they they felt, you know, this is obviously not everyone. However, I don't think Dickie saw it this way at all. And in fact, he'd included the scene at the end with all the people feeding um, Ed mm -hmm. and Bobby because he wanted to show the kindness at the heart of these people. Mm -hmm. But still, the story that he created had become synonymous with sort of backwoods horror. So... Dickie's son, who has actually written extensively about the making of Deliverance because he was on set for a lot of it, said, quote, I couldn't get through to my father anymore and wouldn't until more than 20 years later. If you're a writer, your ego is a big part of what you do. And if all of a sudden everybody's encouraging you to be crazy, hard drinking, eccentric, you do that. And he did. Dickie died of lung cancer in 1997 and was buried on Pauley's Island, South Carolina. His tombstone reads a line from his poem in the treehouse at night. Quote, I move at the heart of the world. He did not ever write anything else that had the amount of success or acclaim that Deliverance did. He just never, he never quite came close. So that about wraps it up. And I've got a, I've got a what went right already. Well, let's hear it. So one thing that actually really good that came out of Deliverance is that um, one of the people who went to one of the early screenings was Jimmy Carter. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. And when he saw all of the press that the movie was bringing to Georgia, kudos to Jimmy Carter, because he watched this movie and everybody around him was like, oh, my God, I can't believe we're watching this with Jimmy Carter. He's going to freak out. He actually was 
regardless of the content of the film, he was thrilled for the amount of attention that it was bringing to his state. Mm -hmm. And he helped to establish a state film commission. Well, oh, he helped establish the Georgia Film Fund. Yeah, film which fast forward to current day. And because of this, Georgia has it's at become... the end of every Marvel movie. <laughs> yeah, has become a major hub for film and television production. Mm -hmm. So that's actually like due in no small part to Deliverance. No, I believe it. Yeah. Uh, Deliverance and a peanut farmer. And that gets you a film fund. Yeah. Uh, that's a great what went right. I think there are a ton of what went rights for this one that are very obvious. So I'm going to pick a very, very specific one, which is that there is a very famous type of shot in film that you probably are familiar with called a split diopter shot. And that's where you have something in the foreground close to the camera and something in the background that are one sharing, you know, each half of the frame and somehow both are in focus, right? And they've put a diopter over half the frame that brings something close in focus while something far away is in focus too. And it is used to very striking effect, like Hitchcock has used it. And usually I find it incredibly distracting. I think it looks terrible. However, in this movie, they use it twice when John Voight is holding the arrow and he can't take the shot at the deer and the camera's on him and both his face and the arrowhead are in focus and it's so effective. And then they repeat it in the second half of the film from his point of view, they show both the hunter and the arrowhead in focus as he's aiming the arrow. And I just thought it was a really brilliant use. And I thought, so my bigger, what went right is the cinematography in this movie is beautiful. I yeah, think it's it awesome. looks great. Uh, whatever scan that they're using on Amazon, which is how I streamed it, looks really good. The colors look gorgeous. It felt very modern, um, very lush. You could take so many shots from it and they would just be beautiful photographs. So I would just say the cinematography was a huge what went right in a movie full of things that went right. Yeah. If you haven't seen Deliverance, we highly recommend that you watch it. Maybe not with your dad. And oh, I would just say, go for it. Family movie night. Oh, my Put God. Put it on. <laughs> You're in quarantine. You don't want to talk about politics. No. Watch Deliverance together. That's true. Uh, <laughs> it might make you want to talk about politics instead. Um, <laughs> but no, we can't recommend it uh, more highly. And like Lizzie said, truly a horror film. Lizzie, anything else? I'm hungry. Me too. Okay. Bye. Bye. <laughs>